0: Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal female criminals episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular podcast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cannibals and vampires. We'll examine strange cases of predators who drink blood and feast on flesh and delve into their unique psychology. Cases of clinical vampirism are rare, but the condition has a long history. The concept was first introduced in the 19th century by Richard Fryer von Kraft-Ebbing. It later became known as Renfield syndrome. Renfield syndrome is not listed as a psychiatric disorder on its own in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, but it is often associated with schizophrenia. Richard Knoll, who identified the syndrome in 1992, believes that vampirism starts in childhood, when a child links the sight or taste of blood with a feeling of excitement. From there, a patient may experiment with auto-vampirism, or the drinking of one's own blood the disorder then commonly progresses to drinking the blood of animals, and ultimately to drinking the blood of another human being. It's at this stage when a person with Renfield syndrome becomes violent, killing to pursue their lust for blood. Some affected individuals believe the blood will bring them supernatural powers, further motivating them to kill. Noll also noted that there's often a sexual component in which the person is sexually gratified by the taste of blood. Like vampirism, cannibalism is also linked to sexual gratification for some individuals. According to psychologists Dr. Amy Likens and Dr. James Cantor, killers who eat their victims have a type of sexual paraphilia called vororaphilia, causing them to be sexually aroused when eating other people. Similar to vampirism, cannibals may also start to show signs of their vororaphilia in childhood. According to psychologist Eric Hickey, they may also have a history of abuse or trauma that has developed into extreme attachments to people, as well as low self-esteem. In our clips today, we'll discuss several cases of these two conditions, and see how vampires and cannibals behave when committing brutal crimes. We'll begin with a clip from the ParCast original, Unsolved Murders, about the case of the Atlas Vampire because the case is still unsolved, it isn't confirmed whether the murderer of Lily Lindstrom in 1932 truly had vampirism. But when police arrived at the scene of the crime, they discovered that, despite the brutal nature of the murder, very little blood was present. Upon further investigation, police found saliva on the body's neck and a blood-stained gravy ladle. The evidence made them wonder whether they were hunting a vampire. Look at this.
1: What is it? A soup ladle?
2: Something like that. Maybe a gravy ladle.
1: The murder weapon?
2: No, not heavy enough.
1: What is that liquid?
2: I think it's blood. Her blood? Who else? Wait, what are you saying? It looks like the perp killed her. And then drained the body. No. Yes. And then? I think he drank her blood. With a revelation that the murderer of Lily Lindstrom had drained the blood from her body and possibly drank it?
1: hold on. How are we jumping to the conclusion that he possibly drank it?
2: That was a theory of the police.
1: But there's no actual evidence of anyone drinking blood.
2: Well, sure, there was no eyewitness, but there was blood on the gravy ladle.
1: Well, that could have been just from draining the blood of her body.
2: Okay, but isn't that a bizarre enough ritual in and of itself? Draining the blood from a victim's body? Agreed. And that opens up a line of inquiry, profiling the killer.
1: Was this premeditated murder or a crime of passion?
2: I could see it going either way. Hmm. Lily was killed by a blow to the head. That could have been planned or spontaneous.
1: But then the perpetrator stayed in the room long enough to drain the blood. That suggests planning, or at a minimum, some sort of strange fantasy that the killer was now playing out.
2: Now, this wasn't a serial killer, at least that we know about, because there was only one victim. But serial killers can be broken down into two groups, organized or disorganized.
1: There's certainly evidence of organization. The victim appears to be carefully selected. The clothes were neatly folded. He had time to do the blood draining. He got away clean, taking the murder weapon with him.
2: But there's also disorganization.
1: The organized killer doesn't leave behind evidence, and this killer did. The body, the used condom, the ladle.
2: Well, this could be one of those rare cases where the killer is a mixed offender.
1: Where there is evidence of planning, but maybe the killer was overcome by a frenzy or a compulsion.
2: Did he plan to kill Lily before he got to the flat? Or was it a sexual compulsion that got carried away? Then. Did he plan to drain the blood and possibly drink it or was that another fetish that he acted on?
1: Our first thought is that he knew he had enough time to get away with the blood draining. But there's also a chance that he just acted and part of the thrill was that he could be discovered at any moment.
2: We also have to consider the possibility that this was his first kill and he was developing his method.
1: Which brings us to the question of MO versus signature.
2: The MO, or modus operandi, describes the tools or strategies that a criminal uses to commit a crime.
1: How he does the deed and tries to get away with it.
2: Arranging a rendezvous with a prostitute at night, possibly establishing an alibi, maybe bringing the murder weapon and carrying it away.
1: The MO can change over time as the killer refines his method.
2: While the signature is an act that has nothing to do with committing the crime and getting away with it, and it will not change.
1: In this case, there are a couple of possible signatures, the posing of the body and the post-mortem mutilation.
2: Which brings us to the condom.
1: Why did he leave it behind?
2: Maybe to show dominance? The body was face down and he was in charge.
1: Or maybe he considered it dirty, and now it belonged to this dirty victim.
2: Well, there is also a chance that he had killed the victim in the sex act and completed it after she was dead.
1: Well, that's definitely a troubling thought.
2: The whole case is troubling. And then there's the draining of the blood.
1: Was this the killer's signature?
2: Would there be another prostitute showing up with the blood drained from her body?
1: The investigators were certainly concerned about the killer striking again.
2: And the public as well. The perp was now being called the Atlas Vampire.
0: Following that clip from Unsolved Murders, police struggled to search for the elusive, possibly vampiric killer. Though authorities couldn't conclusively determine whether the culprit was a vampire, the crime scene was almost completely devoid of blood. It's possible the killer collected the blood and took it with them to another location. There, the vampire could use the blood to relive the crime in private and sexually satisfy themselves. As far as police know, Lily was the Atlas Vampire's only victim. Because she was a sex worker, detectives considered many of her clients to be potential suspects. The suspects made it tempting to speculate that the Atlas Vampire was male. Psychologist Richard Knoll contends that clinical vampirism is primarily a male phenomenon. But ultimately, Lily's murder remains unsolved to this day. As our next clip will show, even some females are fascinated with drinking blood. Up next, we'll discuss Australia's infamous lesbian vampire killer, Tracy Wigginton. Now back to the show. So far, we've talked about the connection between clinical vampirism and the notorious Atlas vampire. Because his victim was a female sex worker, police assume the Atlas vampire was a man. But a murderous thirst for human blood isn't exclusively a male phenomenon. In our next clip from Female Criminals, we delve into the case of Tracy Wigginton, also known as the lesbian vampire killer. For years, Wigginton had adopted the traits of a storybook vampire. She had no mirrors in her room and started to live nocturnally. She also claimed to her girlfriend and friends that she drank animal blood. But in 1989, Wiginton decided she was no longer satisfied with the blood of animals. She wanted to taste a human.
3: On the night of October 20th, 1989, in Cairns, Australia, 24-year-old Tracy Wigginton lured 47-year-old Edward Bulldock to certain doom along the banks of the Brisbane River.
4: She had left him, stone-drunk, beside an old boat shed, promising to return after she grabbed something from her car, where her three cohorts waited.
3: When Tracy got back to the car, she looked murderous. She grabbed a long knife and asked her coven to join her. Kim Jarvis and Tracy Waugh refused, not ready to kill someone in cold blood.
4: Lisa Paczynski jumped out of the car and happily followed her girlfriend down to the boat shed where Edward was waiting.
3: As they drew closer, Lisa began to have second thoughts. With each step she took, the situation grew more real. She had spent a week visualizing what it would be like to take a human life. She had always pictured herself
4: able to do it, able to kill for the leader of her coven. But when she saw Edward, the gravity of the grisly crime struck her. She froze, then slowly began to shake her head, unable to continue. She backed out. Tracy, however, was
3: undeterred. She stepped around her girlfriend and snuck up behind Edward. She
4: withdrew the knife and
3: stabbed him in the back repeatedly.
4: She hit him with such brute force that he didn't have time to react. And being incredibly intoxicated, he couldn't get his wits about him in time to defend himself. He crumpled to the ground in a heap. Tracy kept
3: stabbing. She stabbed his back and neck 27 times in total, nearly severing his head. At one point, she grabbed his hair to pull his head up, then stabbed the front of his throat as well.
4: Lisa watched as Tracy hacked away at her victim, looking frenzied. It was terrifying, although she didn't feel scared. Hesitant, but never worried.
3: When she finished, Tracy ordered Lisa to wait at the car. It was time to feed, and she wanted to enjoy the spoils of her kill alone.
4: Lisa headed up the embankment as Tracy looked at her victim. She had stabbed Edward so many times that part of his back had concaved, making a little bowl that was quickly filling with blood.
3: Tracy drank from it eagerly until she felt dizzy and sick from the feeding frenzy. She had never drunk so much blood in her life.
4: When she got back to the car, she was covered in blood and she told her coven she felt like she had just eaten a three-course meal.
3: At some point in the next hour or so, Tracy realized that she had lost her bank card. When a thorough search of the card didn't produce it, she and her coven returned to the scene of the crime to search.
4: They tried to be quick, looking for the card in total darkness, the crumpled-up body of Edward Bulldog just inches away, But, after a few minutes, one of the girls thought she heard something, and they scattered. A
3: few hours later, just after daybreak, Stephen Karen was rowing his kayak down the Brisbane River, as he did almost every morning. But as he moved past the old boat
4: shed, he saw
3: something odd.
4: At first, he believed it to be a drunk taking a catnap, or possibly a homeless person sleeping on the grass. But then, he saw blood pooling around the body and splattered up the side of the boat shed. He knew immediately that something was very, very wrong. He called
3: the police, who discovered the dead body of Edward Bulldog and determined that the murder had taken place within the last few hours.
4: A coroner report found that the first stab wound had been to Edward's backside and had been so vicious that it nearly severed his spinal column.
3: Detective Pat Glancy recalled standing over Edward at the scene. When he went to turn the body over, the head didn't initially come with it. He thought it was going to fall off.
4: Glancy has since said that this was the most gruesome murder he encountered in his career.
0: That clip from Female Criminals revealed the startling progression of Tracy's Renfield syndrome. Just as psychologist Richard Null described in his research, Tracy's vampirism first manifested when she began consuming animal blood. But soon she moved on to human blood, ultimately resorting to violence to satiate her thirst. Forensic psychologist Donald Grant interviewed Tracy following the murder and noted that she seemed to relish in the violence he said he saw a degree of sadism in the murder. He also noted that Tracy felt that consuming blood brought her supernatural powers. This is also in line with Renfield syndrome. Despite the brutality that vampires like Tracy display when murdering their victims, there are some killers that take the violence even further. For some, only dismembering and consuming corpses is enough to satisfy their hunger. Our final clip from Serial Killers covers the crimes of a gruesome cannibal, Albert Fish, nicknamed the Werewolf of Wisteria. In the 1920s, Fish was convicted of murdering, mutilating and cannibalizing three children. Years before these slayings, Fish was a troubled child with a family history of mental illness. He was put into an orphanage by his mother when he was five years old, where he was regularly abused. There, he displayed a disturbing fascination with the idea of feasting on human flesh. Fish was obsessed with stories about cannibalism. His favorite book was the Edgar Allan Poe novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, which involves characters having to eat one another for survival. Fish also collected newspaper articles about Fritz Harman, who was a German serial killer that murdered over 20 boys and young men. Harmon would bite through his victims' throats, then dismember their bodies, keeping some of the meat for himself and selling the rest on the black market.
3: According to Fish, this intense interest in stories about cannibalism started when he was a young boy. He claimed his older brother was in the Navy and had told him stories about places in the Far East afflicted by famine. In these places, people had to eat human flesh in order to survive, and desperate families would sell off their children to be eaten. Fish said that this was what initially sparked his desire to eat another person.
0: But what about Fish's psychology that would prompt this desire? After hearing stories about cannibalism, most people are not inspired to try human flesh themselves. Why was that Fish's reaction?
3: There are a few theories that fit with Fish's background, One theory is that being abandoned in childhood could cause a person to want to consume another later on in life as a way to fill the void caused by that early separation. By consuming another person, they ensure that person can never leave them.
0: Well, we know that Fish was traumatized as a child by being left in an abusive orphanage for four years by his mother. We focused on the effect the abuse he experienced in the orphanage had on him. But it sounds like the act of being left by his mother was trauma in itself. Fish was also later abandoned by his first wife, Anna Fish, in 1917. Could this have triggered him to act on cannibalistic tendencies?
3: Mm Mm-hmm. It's possible. Before his wife left him, Fish may have only fantasized about eating another person, but never followed through. It could be that experiencing the trauma of being abandoned as he had been in childhood was what triggered him to act on these cannibalistic impulses with Billy Gaffney in 1927. But this theory of being traumatized by abandonment doesn't explain the sexual aspects of Fish's cannibalism. Fish admitted that when he ate the flesh of his victims, he experienced, quote, absolute sexual excitement, and that he would draw out the experience by eating the meat over several days. During that time, Fish said he would masturbate constantly.
0: Well, at this point, if there's one thing we know about Albert Fish, it's that his motivations were primarily sexual, like his sadomasochism.
3: Well, it's likely that Fish's sexual sadomasochism was connected to his sexual motivations for his cannibalism. One theory is that for criminal sadists, cannibalism is the ultimate show of dominance over another person. To consume someone is to exert total power over them. Combined with the previous theory of abandonment, consuming his victims could have made Fish feel as though he was exerting total control of them and their bodies while also forcing them to stay with him.
0: Well, not exactly the most rational thought process, Vanessa.
3: No, it isn't. But given Fish's schizophrenic tendencies, it would have made sense to
0: him. Do you think his schizophrenia played a part in his cannibalism as well?
3: Oh, absolutely. Many criminal cannibals are diagnosed with schizophrenia. For Fish in particular, his schizophrenia presented itself as religious delusions and hallucinations. He believed he was making sacrifices to God by killing children. And that same kind of religious delusion presented itself in his cannibalism as well. According to the testimony of Dr. Frederick Wortham, the psychiatrist who spent the most time studying Fish's mind, Fish believed that eating his victim was like the sacrament of Holy Communion. In his deranged mind, he believed that the act of killing and eating a child was comparable to that of taking part in a symbolic religious rite that's meant to spiritually connect one with Christ. Leave it to Albert Fish to take something harmless and innocuous and twist it into something horrific and insane for his own self-righteous purposes.
0: So Fish's cannibalism seems to have been caused by the perfect storm of his traumas and disorders, being abandoned, his sexual sadomasochism, and his religious delusions. In that clip from Serial Killers, we heard several theories as to why Fish later cannibalized his victims. But whatever drove Fish to commit his twisted crimes, there's little doubt he derived sexual pleasure from killing and consuming flesh. He paid the price for it in 1936, when he was executed by electric chair for his brutal crimes. The killers we've discussed in today's clips show that vampires and cannibals are more than just myths of the macabre. Ultimately, bloodsuckers and flesh-eaters are very rare. When these compulsions do manifest, it's usually due to a combination of pre-existing mental illness and an inability to keep fantasies separate from reality. Even so, the unidentified specter of the Atlas Vampire, the notorious lesbian vampire killer, and the horrible acts of Albert Fish all prove there are realities more terrifying than our nightmares. Thanks for tuning in to ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on vampires and cannibals. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on abductions, how victims are taken, and what motivates their kidnappers. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Unsolved Murders, Female Criminals, and Serial Killers on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.